Let us pray. Absolute and all-knowing Father, nothing is hidden from your sight. From eternity, even before the beginning, all knowledge existed with you. Through our study of the Gospels, reveal your knowledge to us, illuminated by the light of the Holy Spirit, without which your word cannot be truly known. Grant us the wisdom to apply what we learn and the courage to teach it to others. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. About a month ago, I was in Chicago for my day job and had some time to walk around uh, the city for the first time since before the pandemic. Chicago remains a beautiful and sublime city with so many striking buildings uh, embodying different architectural styles from, from throughout the ages. And one such building I found myself drawn to because of the sound of the ringing bells was the Holy Name Cathedral, which was built after the great Chicago fire destroyed pretty much the entire city. Uh, and this, this cathedral, it's, it's built in this style. I think it's Gothic Revival or something like that. Uh, it was all the rage in the late 19th century. If you travel throughout uh, the country, especially on the East Coast and New England, I mean, almost every cathedral made during that period was made in this style. It's, and it's a very retro style, even you know, for the time, uh, because it's evocative of the, of the European cathedrals in the Middle Ages, you know, with all the towers and pointed arches and pinnacles. You know, and I think the idea was you know, these things are going so high, so vertical, that it just naturally draws your eye up so that you look towards heaven. And I do like retro churches, obviously. Yeah, I like this church too. Um, but you know, I do think uh, you know, modern and postmodern church architecture can also be you know, compelling uh, as well. One of my favorites that I actually you know, was sort of able to watch as it was being built uh, was, is in Los Angeles. I, I used to work out there, live out there, and the court building is pretty much right next to uh, where this church was being built. And it was called uh, the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels. And it's this huge sort of monumental structure. Uh, I mean, think, I think they finished it maybe, well, by now, maybe 15, 20 years, 15 years ago. And it was, and it was built to replace the previous old cathedral that had been ruined in an earthquake way back in uh, the mid-90s. And one of the main criticisms that I remember during the construction of Our Lady of the Angels was that it was, it was ridiculously expensive. I mean, I think it was something like $200 million, which was a lot in those days. And you know, by any standard, really, that's, that's a lot of money for a building, uh, especially for a church. I mean, it was a lot more than what this church cost. Uh, and you know, even probably more than, a lot more than, you know, what, what's the Cathedral of Charlotte? Isn't it the, the great pink? Well, it's not pink anymore, they repainted it, but the, the Mary Kay Cathedral, I think it used to be called here in Charlotte off of uh, 51. I mean, and the question always is, you know, when you see things like that, to some extent, you just can't help thinking, gosh, like, how could anyone spend so much money on a church? You know, and of course, Our Lady of the Angels, I mean, it, it is huge. I mean, it's, it's, I think it was, at the time at least, the largest alabaster structure in the world. Even its windows, you know, which, which soar, you know, 12 stories high. It's made out of, not glass, not even, you know, it's translucent alabaster. They didn't just, you know, paint over like glass. They, they actually got the alabaster so thin that, that light comes through it. 
And, it was a sp and what's also remarkable, I mean, they made this thing to last for centuries. And you know, that's remarkable in a world where like nothing lasts more than until the warranty expires. But this was designed to last for centuries and because, you know, LA is earthquake country, I mean, it had to survive, you know, even a really powerful earthquake. So, uh, you know, and, and so more than that, I mean, it, it kind of represents the very, very, very best in a sense of, of 21st century architecture and design and materials with the purpose of reflecting the diversity of its congregation as well as the story of the gospel with, with no expense spared. And, you know, when I actually got to walk around this cathedral one day when I went back to visit after it was completed, I, I mean, I just couldn't help sort of admiring the, the beauty and, and the sublimity of the structure. Now, I'm not Roman Catholic, okay? And, uh, and, and I, I don't agree with, with most, a lot of their theology. But, you know, they're not totally wrong in every single thing either. Uh, and in this case, uh, it, was not, it, was, it, was, it was impossible for me to not behold what they had built there as a sort of profound and spectacular declaration of the glory of God. And as we, as we examine our scripture text for this morning, we will see that there are, there are times when utility is not everything, at least as, as we as people think of it, as what, in terms of what is useful for mankind, what will help humanity flourish. And there are times when it is entirely appropriate to pour out the perfume, so to speak, to pour out the, the ointment and spare no expense, no effort, and making things and doing things of sheer beauty in the service of our Lord. Our text in John 12, which has parallels in, in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, shows a woman, Mary, the, the sister of Martha, who cracks open an alabaster cask to pour out some very, very expensive ointment, some very expensive perfume over Jesus. And this perfume, by the way, is this, it's a thick and intensely aromatic oil derived from the roots of the spikenard flower plant native to the Himalayan mountains. I mean, that's almost, that's really good ad copy right there, right? That marketing. But it's true. And it was used in the ancient world for all kinds of sacred rituals. It was also used as, as a medicine and uh, as a perfume, of course, and even sometimes as a food additive. And apparently, spikenard perfume is also extremely attractive to cats. It's almost supposedly like catnip in its ability to induce, you know, that, that sort of rolling around on the ground, you know, feline ecstasy. And back in the day, Spark, spikenard was, was very expensive, very expensive. During, during the time of Jesus, just a pint of this stuff cost around 300 denarii, which was uh, an average unskilled laborer's yearly income. So to put that in perspective, one of the teenagers in my neighborhood told me the other day that he makes about $15 an hour at the local Mexican restaurant to, to bus tables and mop floors. Now, whatever, 15 bucks an hour back in my day would have been a fortune, but today I guess it's just an average, you know, unskilled laborer's wage. And so a year's income of 15 bucks an hour uh, is about, is about $28,000. 
$28,000. And even by, you know, sort of the extreme, you know, top half and monocle standards of wealth of today, you know, a $28,000 bottle of, of anything would be, be pretty extraordinary. It'd be rare. It'd be hard to come by. It's not something you're just going to pick up at the Harris Teeter. So you can imagine how surprising it would be, to say the least, if someone who was not, you know, some sort of multi-billionaire, and, you know, Mary was not. Uh, it, I mean, it's amazing. She got a $28,000 bottle of, of eau de catnip <laughs> just to pour it over, over Jesus. Over, and then what's, what's even more, you know, Jesus, I mean, he had a special love for the poor. I mean, he said things like, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Uh, that's in you know, Matthew 19. And, and he said other things like, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. That's in Luke 14. And, and thus we see the reaction of Jesus' disciples who, uh, you, you know, at least initially, and, you know, obviously, you know, the, the one guy who voiced his objection, Judas, he had ulterior motives, but, you know, the other disciples probably thought kind of a similar thing, which is, which is you know, this, is, this astonishing and extravagant spectacle. I mean, it's, isn't, it, isn't it kind of a waste? I mean, you know, we, you know whether out of legitimate... Uh, concern for the poor. I mean, I mean, twenty eight thousand is going to buy you a lot of meals. It's going to buy a lot of clothes. It's going to buy a lot of shelter. Uh, you know, and, or even if it's out of selfish greed, in the case of Judas, I mean, pouring out this perfume over Jesus. I mean, doesn't it seem like this this incredible waste? But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say about this? He defends. Mary's extravagance, knowing that in about a week he's going to die for the sins of the world, Jesus points out that by anointing him, the woman is preparing his body for burial. It's certainly true that that the ancient Jewish custom held that the dead must be anointed with with various spices and, and oils and perfumes. But what was done for Jesus is much more than any simple, everyday sort of burial anointing, because, because then, I mean, as, as in today, now, uh, most simply could not or would not spend that kind of money on a bottle of fancy you know, perfume oil and un- undoubtedly commonly use much less expensive substances for such purposes. I mean, so what kind of person would, would get this kind of extravagance? I mean, this is the sort of thing that's normally reserved for, for great princes, for lords, for kings. And this is something which Mary recognized. For she recognized that Jesus was the King of kings, the Prince of peace, and the Lord of hosts. And so for her, it's, it's entirely appropriate that he should have the very best, the very best, the very finest that she could offer no matter what the cost was. But there's still even something more than preparing Jesus for burial by anointing him in the manner of a king. Jesus also praises the woman's actions in pouring the perfume out by saying that she has done this beautiful thing for me. A beautiful thing. A beautiful thing to God. Why, Why would God 
in, in the person of Jesus Christ find the pouring out of a $28,000 bottle of perfume oil beautiful. It is significant, I think, that Jesus associates what is beautiful with something which has value, primarily due to its, its sort of sensory effects. We, you know, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, those, those, are, sensory, those are sensory values and sensory effects. You know, perfume, for example, uh, especially a $28,000 bottle of perfume, it's valuable, be, it's valuable because of its scent. It, it's a luxury value rather than a utilitarian value. It appeals to the senses in a pleasing way. So while this woman's actions are certainly beautiful because of her motives, wanting to honor her king, there is something about the particular thing she is putting into action, the perfume, that Jesus is saying is beautiful as well. So here, we can see that this perfume symbolizes beauty, and this tells us something about the potential value of beauty in the eyes of God. As Christians eager to do God's work in this world, to spread the gospel and to do our, our Christian duty to love and serve our fellow human beings through acts of charity, acts of ministry, it's, it's easy to get caught up in a mindset uh, that says unless people are actually being saved or being helped by what we're doing or, or making, it's not important. But Jesus says that the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. In other words, be, just because there will always be opportunities to love and serve fellow human beings in need, that does not mean that we should not, when the time comes, also do and make something extravagantly beautiful just for God. It's also easy to think that appearances don't matter, and therefore beauty, whether it applies to material or sensory things, don't matter either. For the, and, you know, it's not for nothing. I mean, the Bible does say the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And so it is certainly true of human beings. God doesn't care if you physically look like an ogre or a princess, as long as your heart and soul are humble, pure, and righteous. This indicates that when the Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God, it is our hearts and our minds that make us essentially human, not the color or clarity of our skins, the symmetry of our faces, or anything like that. And so it is truly beauty in the hearts and minds of men and women, rather than beauty in their physical appearances, which glorify God. But, but things, objects, they don't have hearts or minds. Yet in their own way, when they are beautiful, they too glorify God, as the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. 
They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. If, if you've ever looked up and out into the sky when the clouds are billowed and rich in color, volume, and texture, or looked up into the heavens at night and billions and billions of stars twinkle across into infinity, you know what the psalmist here is talking about. It is, it is a beautiful and sublime view to behold with your, with your visual senses, which inspire a sense of awe and wonder that prompts you to realize God made all of this. And that says something about how incredibly awesome and beautiful and glorious he is. So if things made of the natural world, such as the heavens, can declare the glory of God, even without speech or words or sound, then the things made by human hands who made the image, who are made in the image of God, can do so as well. We see this in, in God's directions on the building of this tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, where many of the costly and extravagant adornments and precious stones and metals, I mean, they're not, just, they're not utilitarian. I mean, they, they appear to have really no other purpose other than their beauty somehow communicating something about the nature and glory of God. We see this in, in music, of course. Singing in particular, I mean, it's so ingrained as this avenue of praise, lamentation, worship, and education throughout the Old and New Testament and the whole history of the church. I mean, that it's, I mean, it's almost like, it seems, it's obvious to point out its value as something that is beautiful to God. And we see this in the manner of the whole of Scripture itself. Though Scripture is the word and the law of God, it does not, thank, thank him, thank the heavens, it doesn't read anything like, you know, the congressional reporter. It doesn't read like, you know, the North Carolina general statutes. Instead, God has chosen his scripture, his special revelation to mankind, to his people, to be in the form of a beautiful and sublime work of literary art. So something beautiful and extraordinary is a thing which can be apprehended by the senses, by the heart, by the mind. These things are also valued by God when it is made, performed, or done for him. And when we unite something that is beautiful and extraordinary in a sensory way, whether it is, you know, a $28,000 bottle of the finest spikenard perfume, whether it's, you know, a beautiful church building, whether it's beautiful music, you know, Bach's Mass in B minor, or, uh, you know, Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son, with this heart that is beautiful, that because it belongs to a faithful servant who loves God and says, I dedicate this to you. I dedicate this to you. This inspires me to glorify you. When you do that, I mean, that is the most beautiful thing of all. And sometimes, making something which is indeed truly beautiful and extraordinary for God, you know, pouring out the perfume, so to speak, sometimes it is costly. We, too, need to think about pouring out the perfume for Jesus, even if it costs us dearly. 
Now, I'm not saying, you know, go out tomorrow and go find a bottle of, I don't know, like $28,000 bottle of 1947 Chateau Cheval Blanc for communion, you know, next month uh, for the whole church to share. Okay, okay. Uh, but what this does mean is, you know, we do need to think about our particular gifts, our particular resources, and how we might somehow use them to make something beautiful for our Lord. Even if it doesn't necessarily have, you know, some sort of utilitarian or practical value. You know, there, were, there was a time when, when Christians took very seriously this idea of beauty, of art, and contributed enormous amounts of time, energy, and resources to create, or at least encourage, the best works of, of art, music, architecture, and literature possible in order to glorify God. But are we still doing that today? Or have we surrendered what is regarded as beautiful to secular culture. For example, does the church tell the world what great music is? Or does the church ask the world what great music is and then try to make our music sound like the music of the world? I mean, in some ways, I mean, I feel like we as Christians have, have sort of given up control of all of the perfume out there in the world to the forces of the world. And we need, to, we need to take it back. We need to take it back. We can start by, by reading, studying, and discussing what is beautiful, what is sublime, what is glorious, and how, how beauty does glorify God, all according to the standards of Scripture. We can examine the efforts of Christians who have gone before us to remember and reclaim our rich heritage of art music and architecture far beyond, you know, just what is simple and easy, uh, you know, beyond, I mean, and, you know, if you love this song, please don't send me a hateful email later. Like, like, shine, Jesus, shine. It's, it's a fine praise song, but I mean, we can do better than that, right? You know, um, we can do better than like the, the anyway. <laughs> and we can make churches look more beautiful than, you know, like a DMV office. We can do better than that. We can, we can encourage and support our brothers and sisters who have extraordinarily uh, you know, great artistic talents and gifts. We can encourage them, we can support them. And, and all of these things are especially important to do with, with children. These are, these are just beginnings, but we need to learn how to recognize, make, and gather our perfume before we can pour it out for the glory of God. Finally, as Jesus taught us, uh, you know, the poor are indeed still with us, so we still do need to meet the needs of the needy. But even as we do so, let us not forget that sometimes we also need to pour out that perfume. Let us pray. Lord, we confess that we are sometimes like the disciples who grumbled either out loud or to themselves, why this waste? instead of seeking ways to glorify you through beauty as well as by serving others to those in need. Please help us learn how to gather the best perfume, so to speak, no matter the cost, so that we might pour it out for you and you alone. In the name of Jesus Christ, who was so beautifully anointed at Bethany in preparation for his death on the cross so that we might have eternal life, we pray these things. Amen.